a podcast to saturate your faith with the things of God so that you might saturate your world with the good news of Jesus Christ. My name is Travis Michael Fleming, and I am your host. And before we get into our passage for today, if you are a frequent listener to our show, I have a special request Would you consider being a part of our watering team, our Apollos Army? We are looking for people to pray for us as we go about this ministry. Because without God building this house, this ministry, the builders then labor in vain who build it. We have to have God build this. Secondly, we are looking for financial partners. If you would like to partner with us to water the world for Jesus, then please go to our website at apolloswater.org and hit the support us button. God is using and growing this ministry because we want to see or water the faith of people around the world. In fact, we've already seen people downloading and listening in 25 different countries, and we've only been around for about three months. And we think that is awesome, and all glory goes to God because God is building this. But if you would like to be a part of our ministry team, part of this Apollo's army, we are looking for monthly supporters to make that happen. And here's how you can help. For $2 a month, you can have a RAIN membership. And what that means is, is you just you, you give to us, you support us with $2 a month. And we know that many people out there can do that. Go ahead then, play in the rain. We're not going to tell your mom, and you will feel like a kid again as you delightfully contribute $2 a month. And we want to say thanks for helping us out. We really appreciate it. And if you think, though, that you can go to the next level, well, that's our POUR, P-O-U-R level. That's when the skies are opening up and you can support us on this level for $5 a month. And here's what happens. You get early access to some of our new content every month. Now, the third level is what we like to call our drench level of membership, and that's $10 a month. And here's what happens there. Because you want to do more than play in the rain, you want to dance in the puddles. And when you support us at this level, you also get access to exclusive bonus content from our interviews. You get to hear the questions that no one else gets to hear. And the fourth level is a $25 a month membership, and we like to call this the flood level of membership. That's when the waters are rising fast, and to show our appreciation, consider yourself invited to our quarterly live stream event. It will be our grand tour of what we are planning next and an opportunity for you to tell us the things that you want to hear about. And the fifth level, there should be a drum roll, is our $50 a month level, and that is what we like to call our tsunami membership level. And that's where you need to look out because a wave of ginormous proportion is headed your way. It's our gratitude You get everything from the lower levels, plus your name and lights or pixels on our website. And we want to thank you for that. Of course, though, if you really want to, you can surprise us. You can be our giving ninja. That's when you give and we don't even know what's going on or have any idea where it's coming from. And that could be a one-time gift or monthly support, more than we have listed. But we're asking you to prayerfully partner with us to saturate the world with the knowledge of Jesus. And again, you just go to our website, Apollos, and that's 
A-P-O-L-L-O-S-W-A-T-E-R-E-D dot O-R-G. And then the upper right-hand corner is a beautiful little box that says support us. And we would love if you were to do that. And we want to give you a big thank you for partnering with us. And I also want to let you know about our first ever Apollos Wandered Weekend Men's Retreat. We will be meeting at Phantom Ranch Bible Camp in Muckwanago, Wisconsin, opening the Word of God, discovering how we might thrive in Babylon. And we're going to be examining the book of Daniel, breaking down Daniel's life, and seeing how God used him in the middle of a very difficult situation to bring glory to his name. And that's taking place on Friday, February 19th through Sunday, February 21st of 2021. And our theme is Thriving in Babylon. You can sign up at phantomranch.org slash events. And I look forward to seeing you there. Now, let's get after it. Please turn with me, if you haven't, to the book of Acts, chapter 2, verse 14 through 41. And I know the last time we were together, we started in Acts. Now, here's the deal. I know that this is a huge passage, but it is a very important passage, and we're going to get to that in just a second. And as you're turning there, did you know what happened on July 8th? 1741. I'm sure many of the many of us have that date just put into our memory banks. And if you're not familiar with it, a guy by the name of Jonathan Edwards delivered a sermon he entitled Sermon Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Now here's what you need to know about this sermon. It was incredible. One of the greatest sermons ever to be preached in the history of the world. What's even more amazing about it is this guy didn't have a ton of personality. Jonathan Edwards wasn't known as a great, I mean, charismatic personality and his presentation, and and he didn't have all that. As a matter of fact, he read it word for word without much inflection, and he held the pages right up to his face because he couldn't see very well. But what happened is incredible. God spoke so powerfully through that sermon Without, I mean, that people were crying out to God for mercy. Others were actually holding on to the pillars of the church, fearful that they were going to slide into hell. That message is responsible for starting what became known as the Great Awakening in America. As what happened there flooded the rest of New England as thousands turned to Christ. You know, there are some sermons that are so amazing that they have to be reprinted and communicated to the next generation. Edward's sermon was amazing. But the first sermon of the church era given by the Apostle Peter was even greater than Edward's sermon. For it marked actually the dawn of a brand new era. A message that was so convicting that it resulted in 3,000 people coming to know Jesus. What was the content of that message? And why did this sermon matter so much? And better yet, how does it affect me? As we will see, this sermon affected all who heard it, and it still affects us today. Let's pause for a moment to really get into this passage, see what it meant, what it means to us, 
and what God wants us to do with it. I'm going to read the passage. It's a little long, but remember, it was a single sermon, and I want to see it or hear it as a single sermon, and I want to read it that way. So here we go. Acts chapter 2, verse 14 through 41. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you, and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, and the moon to blood." Before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God, with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and Having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. 
And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Let's get caught up to speed on what just happened from last week. There were 120 Jewish people in the upper room, okay? Do you remember that? And they, remember, had begun to speak in tongues, causing such a clamor that others in the community noticed and flocked to see what was happening. Some were astonished because they heard people speaking in their specific language. I mean, think about that. If I were to go to a foreign country and I heard all of these different people speaking my language and I knew that not a lot of people spoke my language, I'd be a little freaked out. I was at a restaurant in Aurora, Illinois, and I knew that my waiter had come from Jordan. Now, I don't speak Arabic well, but I can say certain words. He came up, said something, and I said, shokran. And his face just, I mean, his eyebrows raised. He said, oh, and he started speaking to me in Arabic. And I was like, no, 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 no. I just know, thank you. That's it. But he was so astonished that someone would know his tongue. And that's the idea here. Everybody's like, wow, what is going on? I can't believe that these people speak my language. Some were just marveling. Others were mystified. And of course, just like in any era of time, there was a group that mocked it and accused them of being completely drunk. Now, the crowd grew as people were flocking in to see what was going on. And finally, something needed to be said. Let's look at verse 14. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. Okay, so let's stop there for a second. Peter kicks off his sermon by answering mockers with poking a bit of fun at them. Come on, guys, these guys aren't drunk. After all, it's only 9 a.m. Go on. Peter then goes on to declare what it means. And his aim here was to show us what God is doing. God was doing a new work that they had never seen before, and they were trying to figure out what it meant. There are certain things that happens to us that cause us to stop and ponder about the ramifications of it. And that's the case here. With so many, so many people hearing others talking in their own language, it made them wonder, what in the world is going on here? And Peter then offers up an explanation by means of a quotation from the prophet Joel in verse 17. And in the last days, it shall be. Now, I've had several conversations over the past several years over the last days. I've had conversations with good and true Christ followers who believe that we have come into the last days only as recently in the last 10, 15, 25, or 50 years. Some think it's, it's just the last few months. And some of these well-meaning believers, however, in their zeal, believe and connected in some crazed and misguided apocalyptic conspiracy theorists. I mean, just a, 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 some time ago, a few years ago, there was this, I mean, a late and recent failure of a so-called prophet who predicted the end of the world or events that will kick off the end of the world. And there's always something in the news. And like countless others before him, when it came and went, he then changed the date to another time in the future. And, and we know that such predictions are nothing new. It seems like I read about one every few months, whether it's solar eclipsed, eclipses, flares, blood moons, earthquakes, and the like. Those who have tried to predict the comings of Jesus are many, and each one bases his or her prediction on Scripture through various ways of calculating certain prophecies, calendars, and dates. 
Each one of them, though, has been doomed to failure because Jesus told us what? Don't speculate and no one knows the day or the hour. And we still think we're going to outsmart God. And and their foolishness doesn't negate the testimony of Scripture, nor their zeal to make sure that it's done. You can be zealous and still be an idiot. Don't do that. Peter says that we're in the last days, and the outpouring of God's Spirit is the sure sign of their start. And here, here's the deal. God is, is showing us in Peter's sermon that the last days have been inaugurated. I know this is a term that many may or may not be familiar with, depending upon your country of origin. It means to begin or introduce or mark the beginning of. The last days are startling are starting with this event. And again, this might be hard for some, but it's only when you look at time with the blinders of our own era that it gets really confusing. For example, if you have grown up in the U.S. and are looking at a time, at time from the time of your grandparents until now, you will notice a massive shift in outward or public morality. Even if you look at the U.S. from its beginning until now, you will see a gradual moral decline in many areas, though although not in all areas. Some things have become much better. Working conditions, medicine, treatment of women, children, hopefully race, and etc. If you go back over time, there's been a huge improvement. We think that some of this immorality is new. Or the catastrophic events with storms, earthquakes, and wars, and rumors of war. But it's always been. Although perhaps not in our own culture, something that we are readily familiar with. If we look at time beyond our own area and culture, we're going to see things very differently. We're going to see that it, there has always been immorality, persecution, wars, and rumors of wars. The issue for many of us is now that we have a media that alerts us to these things. When, as before in previous generations, they did not have access to such events. How did they know what's going on in another country? But by Peter quoting from the prophet Joel... He is showing that this outpouring of God's spirit is the sign that we are in the last days. And this can be seen, by the way, in how he indwells his people. Look at verse 17. And in the last days, it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. Jews believed that the spirit of God quit speaking with the prophet Malachi. Indeed, what we have is the 400 years of silence between the book of Malachi in the Old Testament and Jesus' coming in the New. And the disciples didn't anticipate the crucifixion and definitely didn't get the resurrection. I mean, they didn't know the note on that. They didn't get it until after he appeared and rose from the dead. And after 40 days, that was followed by the ascension, with Jesus giving his earliest followers a command to wait and tarry until God would send forth the Holy Spirit, who would not just be with them, and here's the kicker, he would be in them, helping them to accomplish the task of being witnesses all over the world. It would not be regulated to Jews only. Although this book of Acts begins with them, it moves to the Gentiles, those who are outsiders. And this is extremely, extremely important and relevant to our era. Because if we're looking at it beyond, I mean, just Gentiles generally, it means those outside of the covenant people of God, and it means people that are different than ourselves, all of them. So we see that's what's going on here. 
It would not be regulated to Jews only, but it would be for the Gentiles. And here we have men, women, and children being affected, old and young, without distinction of race, language, gender, or social status. This is radical. Sons and daughters would prophesy, and this may not seem like a big deal. You might be like, oh, that's old hat, of course. But in ancient Israel, only those who were designated prophets would actually, for the most part, prophesy. That's why you have some people give their their basic their, their credentials. And some say, no, I was not born a prophet nor the son of a prophet. But most of the time, you had to be a prophet. It was like it was your job. It was your office. They would be the ones who would prophesy. Here, though, we have God pouring out his spirit on sons and daughters, young men and old men, some in visions and others in dreams. One need only look to see how God is appearing to those in Islam right now with the visions of Jesus. And allow me to give a word of caution here. Any vision or dream that does not that 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 does come has to be in submission to God's word. Period. It cannot be elevated over nor can it ever be on the same par as God's word. And if there is any contradiction between the two, the dream and vision, dream, vision, and that's up against the word, God's word wins every single time. And we're going to get to a theology of visions for another time, visions, excuse me, a theology of dreams at another time. But there is a theology of dreams that the scripture does talk about, and we would do well to pay attention to. But before we go to Peter's quotation of the prophet Joel, I think we need to understand that God is not beholden to how we do things. Prophecy has many parts to it. Here's the deal. There are direct and indirect prophecies where some things are obvious and some are not. There are prophecies filled with figures and symbols that have literal fulfillments, like, for example, Jesus being the bronze serpent who would be lifted up and all who would look to to him for salvation. And remember, almost every prophecy, when fulfilled, is almost always fulfilled in a way that no one expected. There are some even with multiple fulfillments, other with partial and progressive fulfillments that are seen over time. Still others that we only recognize a picture of the pi- a pixel, excuse me, of the picture that God has given and we can't grasp its fullness. And I don't have time to go into all the examples of that. But one thing is for sure, prophecy is beneficial to the church because it reminds us that God is in charge from beginning to end and things will happen in the way he has said. With that being said, let's look now at the prophecy of Joel in verse 18 through 21. Excuse me, verse 19 through 21. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that, it, that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. I'm not a massive scholar, but this could be either literal or symbolic. Either way, though, it refers to the final consummation of everything before God's judgment comes. Therefore, we can see that God informs us of an approaching judgment. That's the point. He tells us of the coming day of the Lord when God brings his wrath upon the people of the earth. The Old Testament testifies to this day which had some days that acted as precursors or previews to that one specific day still yet future. 
The New Testament testifies that is a day that God will visit the earth as never before, pouring out his wrath on the unbelieving world. It will come quickly like a thief in the night, and we must be watchful and ready for it at any moment. And this is what our world has largely lost the taste of or even a conversation of. You rarely hear about this subject in churches anymore because no one wants to hear about God's judgment. And with postmodernity in the air, which means there is not one overarching story, it's all left down to how this helps your marriage, how this helps your family. It becomes very kind of self-help oriented rather than the true proclamation of the gospel. And the proclamation of the gospel is this, that Jesus came as a fulfillment of God's prophecies to born of a virgin, born under law, to to live under the law and fulfill the law by taking our sins upon himself, identifying supremely with us, dying our death on the cross. That was what we deserved because of our sin. He stepped in and took, died, was buried, rose on the third day, and then 40 days later ascended into heaven where he sits at the right hand of God the Father, waiting for the day when he will be given the fullness of his kingdom. And that means he he came the first time as the suffering servant. Next time he shows us shows up as the tattooed fire-breathing king. He comes to judge wickedness. And we have to understand that there is a time in between. And this is the amazing part of his love. God didn't have to do that. God can take us out whenever he wants. But he does that because he loves you. He loves you with an everlasting love. He is merciful. He is abundant in mercy. God doesn't delight in the death of the wicked. He wants people to come to the saving knowledge of him. And Peter knows that, and he tries to make that as clear as he can. He wants us to get right with God. And he invites all to believe while there is still time. This window of opportunity will not be there forever. There there are deals we see in our world all the time that have a limited window of opportunity, like sale ends at midnight. Or you know, we have Black Friday or Cyber Monday, and we have these deals, and we get these coupons, and they have expiration dates. Here's the, the issue, though, that we have with this prophecy or, or, or knowing when the end is going to come. God doesn't tell us exactly when it's going to happen. I mean, there is an end date. The thing is, we just don't know when that end will be, but it will end, which is why Peter concludes his announcement about the coming day of the Lord in verse 21. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. There is an opportunity to believe, and we need to get right with God before that awful day comes. And if we were to cut off the passage there, then we could tell people just to call on God. But Peter expands on who this God we call on is. And while he was explaining what God is doing, he now goes back to show us that this is what God has done. Let's look at verse 22 through 24. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Jesus is the focal point here. You see, God saw us in our helpless estate And he has provided a savior. He knew that we couldn't save ourselves. He knew how bad we really were. But he loved us 
even in that state. Jesus came to earth. He is the only one who qualified, who knows our ins and our outs, and who could relate to us in our sufferings and strivings. And he's the only one who died for us. And there had to be death. There had to be. Sin requires it. For the wages of sin is death. That's the sure sign. I mean, we have death that's on the earth. That's Death exists because of sin. But Jesus is the only one who died for us. He stepped into our place. He came to identify with us. He came to identify with you. He saw everything you would ever do, every evil, every blasphemy, every, every lustful thought or action or whatever it might be. The greed in your heart, the idolatry, the gossip, the hate. I mean, the, the jealousy, the fits of strife, the selfish ambition. He saw it all, the murder that you would do. And he still loved you. For while we were still yet sinners, Christ died for us. He's the one who died for you. He is the one true life that changes all others. Jesus is the key to everything. But do we know if he is really qualified? That might seem strange, but Peter's audience wondered the same thing. And Peter uses this opportunity to build the case. Because the Spirit is being poured out to, ju- to testify to that fact that Jesus is the real deal. And he begins by saying that Jesus, this is Peter, was attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. The word attested means proved. Jesus is seen in the proof of his miracles. I love reading about the miracles of Jesus whether that's turning the water into wine, multiplying the fish and the bread, calming the storm, walking on water, making the lame walk, the deaf hear, freeing those in demonic bondage and raising the dead. He was seen, I mean, there's proof of his miracles. And no one historically has ever been recorded to have done or purported to have done as many miracles as the New Testament speaks to. And even secular documents say that Jesus did the miraculous. So we see Jesus is proven by his miracles, but he's also proven by the plan of God. Look at verse 23. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. It was God's will to crush him so that you might be saved, so that you might be delivered, and that you might be transformed, and that your family tree might take an entirely different direction. This wasn't some cosmic accident. It was God's plan from the very beginning. I once heard a guy say to me, and he, he'd been a theology student, and he was a heretic because here's what he said. He said, God made up the cross because of a mistake that he had made in the garden. What? No. God never made a mistake. If he made a mistake, then he would cease to be God. And here we see that God this is not some cosmic accident. It was God's plan from the very beginning. It was the plan from the very beginning, as we read in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 20 through 21. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. He was known also by the prophecies he fulfilled. 
Peter quotes from Psalm 16, 8 through 11, and then Psalm 110, verse 1, and tells us that Jesus has fulfilled him. In fact, in this, you can look this up on the internet, there are dozens of these Old Testament prophecies that created a fingerprint that only Messiah could fit, the true Messiah. This gave Israel a way to rule out imposters and validate the credentials of the authentic and true and real Messiah. And, he, and this is against astronomical odds. I'm no mathematician, but I, I've heard it go this way. It's one chance that, that some, one person could fulfill all of these Old Testament prophecies. And here's, here's the stat. One chance in a trillion, 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 trillion. I lost count of how many trillions. But Jesus and only Jesus through history matched this prophetic fingerprint. This confirms Jesus' identity to an incredible degree of certainty. So says Lee Strobel in his book, The Case for Faith. It was also proven in the power of his resurrection. I think we, we totally underestimate the resurrection. We like to pay attention to Christmas, but historically Christmas was not as big a deal as the resurrection. I mean, it's the resurrection, as Martin Luther said, that acted as the hinge upon which the door of Christianity turned. Without the resurrection, we've got nothing. And when I hear some whack jobs out there saying that if we found the body of Jesus, that it wouldn't change his faith whatsoever, then I have to question if he's completely nuts. Seriously. You are crazy. I mean, that's why Paul said, if we have hope only in this life, we are above all men to be pitied. Without the resurrection of Jesus, we have absolutely nothing. It's the resurrection that changed the entire deal. And it's the power of his resurrection. And in verse 25 through 28, we have David testifying that God would not let his holy one see corruption or be abandoned to the abode of the dead. And in verse 29 through 32, Peter explains that David didn't testify this about himself, for he died and was buried, and they still had his tomb that they could visit. But here's the deal with Jesus. There was no body. In fact, they were witnesses that he had been raised to life. They ate with him, visited with him. Thomas over there got to stick his finger in Jesus' side. I got a lesson in fishing. I mean, that's what Peter is saying. I got a lesson in fishing, and the list goes on and on and on. Jesus' resurrection testifies to him being the Savior of the world. Why would these guys die if Jesus hadn't been really resurrected from the dead? I mean, think about it. Or they'd say, oh, some, some theorize, oh, he swooned or he passed out. Really? Seriously? I mean, if this guy appears and he, he's, I mean, beat up and he raises his hands and looks at him and goes, I'm the Lord of glory. If he just, if he just passed out and woke up, I mean, this guy was beaten to a pulp. And that, there's just no way that he could have swooned. He really literally rose from the dead. And in verse 33, we read that Jesus has been exalted to God's right hand. He has proved that he is Messiah by the position he is now in. Jesus ascended to the heavens where he sits at the right hand of God, indicating that his work is finished. It's done. To sit at, at God the Father's right hand indicates that his work is finished. And now he awaits for God the Father to bring the full harvest of those who believe in and then will send him back to inflict wrath upon those who have rejected him. 
His position testifies to him being Savior. And then Peter tells us it was necessary for Jesus to go, because if he didn't go, then the Spirit would not have been poured out. Jesus had to go so that the promise of the Spirit's coming would be fulfilled. And Jesus is proven then by the Spirit who is poured out. The fact that this supernatural act is occurring, whereby people can hear hear others speaking in their own tongues, is proof that Jesus is who he said he was. His miracles proved it. The plan of God had spoken about it. The prophecies were told in advance about it. And his resurrection was the exclamation point. The ascension and the spirit were the beginning of the end that is coming. Now, I know I am throwing a ton of stuff, but I'll tell you right now, I get so frustrated when I see churches just skip over this as if it's spiritual flyover. No, this has so much importance. So much importance. And Peter, he he wants to bring his point home and points out that they were the ones who failed to recognize Jesus. And they killed him, the Lord of glory. And while we may not have to be, have may not have been present physically, we were definitely present spiritually. Jesus may have been turned over to the Romans by the Jews, and the Romans may have held the hammer, but we by our sin are convicted as those who have crucified him by our sins. The question then becomes for us, what do we do? Now, our world tries to ignore this. Our world tries to busy ourselves, disregard it, kick it to the curb, pretend it's not that big a deal, but you can't do that very long. I mean, you can try to quiet your conscience, but it's not going to stop God's intervention. You can say it's not true all you want, but that doesn't change the fact. What do we do then? That's the same question that the, the crowd asked Peter. And that's the same question that we must answer. And Peter gives that answer and shows us what we need to do. Peter begins by, by saying, and Peter said to them, repent. Let's start there. Some Christians skip over this entirely and want to get people to accept Jesus without highlighting repentance. But that is not at all biblical. God requires it. We must repent of our sin. What is repentance? Let me give you a definition. The Greek word actually that's used for it refers to changing one's mind for the better, heartily to amend with abhorrence of one's past sins and have conduct worthy of a heart changed in abhorring sin. That's the nice bow. Like put a little bow on that definition. I like to say that it's violently turning away from the life that you used to live to God. C.S. Lewis said, repentance is simply a description of what going back to God is like. There are some who are listening right now who think they're whole, they have Jesus, but they're holding on to their sin. And they've been holding on to it for years. Why do you think that you are saved if you're not willing to give up the very thing that Jesus died to save us from? Why do you hold on to it if you say you love him? It can't be done. And you can't hold on to your sin and Jesus no more than you can have one foot on a plane And on the tarmac, as the plane takes off, it doesn't work. It can't be done. Then Peter says this. Be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. He gives us a command to be baptized. This isn't in the imperative. It's a command. It means that we're required to respond in obedience. It is an imperative. And that is not to be put off. The word means to dip or to immerse. It's the fullest picture of one's identification with Christ. 
Just as Jesus died and was buried in the tomb and then rose again, so we are buried with him in baptism, died with him, and participate by faith in his resurrection life as the Spirit has afforded that new life to us. Implicit in our repentance is our belief in Jesus Christ, and Peter makes it clear to be baptized in his name here. Not that we don't baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but that we believe in his name, and we're identifying with his finished work in our baptism. The formula is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but the object of faith is Jesus Christ. I have had some who tried to make this into some magic formula, placing one baptism over another, with some saying that your baptism is not genuine if it's in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You have to be baptized in literally Jesus' name and then receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, which is revealed by you speaking in tongues. And they say, if you're not baptized in Jesus' name only, then you can't receive the Holy Spirit. But such thinking is to miss the forest through the trees and to turn the words into a magic incantation rather than an act of identification. That's what baptism is. It does not save. It's, It's the declaration of one's salvation and who one is identifying with by being baptized. Even when Peter talks about it and says, this baptism now saves you, not as a washing of the water from the body, but basically of a clean conscience. He's saying that it's showing or revealing that your soul is being cleansed by God. That's what he's talking about there. Baptism doesn't save in that sense. It's the declaration of one's salvation and who one is identifying with by being baptized. I I mean, even I was traveling in Egypt and I was examining some of the different hieroglyphics. And did you know that pharaohs were baptized? Yeah, they were baptized. Why were they doing that? I mean, this is before Jesus. I mean, even John the Baptist, when he's baptizing, people aren't freaked out. Baptism was already established fact in many different faiths and religions and practices in the ancient world. That's why when Jesus shows up to get baptized by John the Baptist, and John the Baptist is like, no, it's not you who should be baptized by me, but it's me that should be baptized by you. And how does Jesus respond? Let it be so now to fulfill all righteousness. What he was saying there is that I have to identify with sinful man. It's an act of identification. And by us being baptized in in Jesus, we are showing that we are identifying with him. So it's not salvific. It's not the literal act of you going in the water that saves you. Some people think that they're going to get cleared up in their life first. Others, actually, they, they want to do this. They want to get cleaned up in their life first and then be baptized. No. Here's what I used to say to people at church. Baptism is not the finish line. It's to show that it's, it's really actually kind of the starting line. And again, this is just an illustration. It's a, it's a metaphor. Don't take it too far. But it's really to show that you're in the race and you're identifying with Christ. And the reality is, is that when we believe and repent, we are willing to do whatever we need to do to be right. And baptism is a pledge to that truth, not the culmination of it. And next, we're to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, this is where things can get wonky. Some, as I have already mentioned, believe that baptism precedes receiving the Holy Spirit. But but if that were the case, then Acts 10, 47 through 49 would be a violation of that. If you don't know the passage, in Acts 10, 47 through 49, we have the Holy Spirit coming upon Gentile believers before they were baptized. And that 
was done as a sign to the Jews that God was working among the Gentiles and were bringing them into one people of God. And I'm really pumped to actually get to that passage because, I mean, not only that passage, but there's a couple more that I used to read over and go, I have no idea what's going on here. And God has revealed some really cool stuff. I found some great commentaries with some great Bible teachers, and it totally makes sense. But we'll save that for another time. And, and, and we all have to remember one thing. As we're reading through the book of Acts, there are some parts that are prescriptive or commanded and others that are descriptive, simply describing what has happened. Here, we have a group of Jews just discovering who Jesus really is. They were to act on what they had just learned and allow God to change them from the inside out by his spirit. As believers today, we are baptized by his spirit the moment that we believe. God works in us and transforms us from the inside out, and we need not seek an external sign to indicate that fact as some are in the habit of doing. But there is a principle here for us. We are to rely on his spirit. Peter reveals to us the necessity of the spirit's work in our lives to help us live the lives he desires us to. We are to live the truth out as witnesses for Christ in our marriages, finances, entertainments, and as we interact with others. Remember, witnessing is not only verbal, but it's truly authenticated in our normal everyday lives and how we do our jobs, how we interact with our bosses or our employees, how we treat our spouses and our kids. It is interconnected, and we have done a great disservice by making it simply to someone praying a prayer. It is an entire life handed over all at once and then remade piece by piece. Now let's get back. Look at verse 39 for a moment. For this promise is for you and for your children and for all who are afar off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. This is a promise that God has given us, to have the Spirit, but not just for ourselves. The Spirit is available to the next generation and the next generation after that. Remember, (laughs) they thought God had withdrawn his Spirit, but now he is promising to help us and the next generation, and we need to relish the opportunity we have right now. Now, I know that some might disagree with me on how I see or understand these texts, and that's fine. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. But we can both agree, and if we disagree on baptism or when the Spirit comes, that's okay. But we can agree that we have an opportunity in front of us. God is working in our generation now, and the gates of hell cannot hold up against God's church moving forward. We need to pray for our children and pray for those who are far away from God and pray that God would call them to himself. Some of us, some of you who are listening right now have children in rebellion. Take advantage of the opportunity that while they are still drawing breath in this age, that they are not beyond the spirit of God's amazing work. God can change them. He desires to. We need to hold on to that promise while there is still time praying and besieging the throne of grace as we rebel against the world's status quo, bringing and beseeching God to bear in the lives of our loved ones and those who are living in rebellion to him. And lastly, we need to run the race that is before us. Look at verse 40. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation, so that those who received his word were baptized And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. He continued to bear witness to them and exhort them. The sermon wasn't just what we read here. That's my, my thought on it. 
It had more parts to it. He kept preaching and encouraging them to save themselves from this generation that was crooked and turned its back on God. He wanted them to understand, and us as well, that we are in a battle and had to fight until the end. We are in a race and we have to keep fighting, pushing, praying, staying on our knees, calling and crying out to God to intervene in our world and in our lives. He's not through speaking. He still speaks today and we need to battle on until we draw our last breath or until Jesus comes again. Peter gives us the beginning of the end, what God was doing then, what he has done in Christ and what we are to do now. If you don't know Jesus, call on him and he will save you. If you have backslidden, turn your heart back and ask God to help you. If your heart has grown cold, ask God to stoke the fire and fan it into flame. Let's battle battle on while there's still time. Today's show has been brought to you by our friend Kathy Brothers of Keller Williams Innovate. If you're looking to buy or sell a home in the Chicagoland area, then you need to call Kathy Brothers of Keller Williams Innovate and her team. She comes with years of experience and loves people. Kathy's trustworthy and cares about her clients. And I've said this so many different times. I know because I am one of them. Kathy is my agent and she rocks. She met with us, learned what we were looking for. I mean, that's not easy to do. We were all over the place. Presented us with the best options and helped us find what was right for us. And she didn't only help us purchase a home, but is regularly checked in to see how we are doing. She's attentive to your needs and style and comes alongside you to help you discover and find what is best for you. Give her a call or text today at 630-201-4664. That's Kathy Brothers of Keller Williams Innovate. Tell her Travis Michael Fleming sent you. That's it for today. If this has helped you so that you can saturate your world, then would you do us a favor? First of all, hit that subscribe button. Leave us a review, interact with us on our social media pages, and share this episode with other people. We would be so honored if you did. And last of all, I need, I need everyone to know I could not do this by myself. I want to thank my ministry running mate, the man Kevin O'Brien. He's our executive editor, chief strategy officer, and he loves to call himself a theological gadfly. I'm still not sure what that means. I also want to thank our social media team of Eliana Fleming and Rebecca Badal, who keep everything beautiful and out in front of everybody. And last of all, the man, Brian Dana, our audio engineer who makes us sound presentable. We want to thank him as well. Water your faith. Water your world. This is Travis Michael Fleming signing off from Apollos Watered. Stay watered, everybody. Stay watered, everybody.